And let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, we just thank you for the chance to be together, God. We're grateful for this opportunity, grateful to sing your praise, to be with each other, Lord, to know that you're here with us, and we just welcome you here, Lord. Thank you, God, for your word. We want to gather around the word, Lord, because we know that the written word leads us to you, Jesus, the living word, and that's our heart and our desire to experience your spirit move in in our hearts and in our lives. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd speak to us, that you'd give us ears to hear, that we'd see the wonderful things in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, chapter 11, the famous story of David and Bathsheba. I was thinking it's kind of like uh, the Bible's awesome because unlike uh, the innocent thief or the virtuous politician or the sports fishermen. The Bible always tells the truth. And it never whitewashes men and women. Historical records, when you look back and you you look at history, often historical records of most kings over the ages are carefully uh, crafted records that exaggerate victories and um, place a nicely finished veneer over defeats and failures and mistakes and embarrassing stories. And the Bible doesn't do that, does it? It's very real life. The records of failure are plain for you and I to read and to see. And they're clarified that, that God is at work in the midst of such things, that his, in his grace, he still uses people through their failings to accomplish his purposes. I think about different characters in the scripture, like how about Noah? He was a man of faith, a man of obedience, and yet... Uh, in one particular situation in his life, got drunk and not good things happened out of it. Or there's Abraham who lied about his wife more than once. Or Jacob who lied to his father Isaac and lied to his brother Esau. There's the story of Moses losing his temper and misrepresenting the Lord before the children of Israel. There's a character in the New Testament that we love named Peter, who you can tell all sorts of things about, none worse than the fact that he denied the Lord Jesus three times on the night that he was betrayed. David, when we look at the story of David, we know this. The Lord set his heart on David. David's the man in Scripture called the, the man after God's own heart, and the Lord chose him from his father's sheepfold, anointed him, blessed him, made a covenant with him with regards to his throne. He said the throne of David, the Lord said, the throne of David will eventually be occupied by one of your descendants who will rule there forever and forever. So when we come to First and Second Samuel, what we see is this, is what it, the Bible is not, is a whitewashed record of David's reign. Outside of the defeat of the giant with a, Stone in the sling, the most famous thing David is known for is what? What we're about to read. David and Bathsheba for an adulterous relationship with this woman and the murder of her husband and the cover-up that followed. And so, what's cool about the scripture is this, is that um, even the person most casually knowing the story of David and Bathsheba or just have some sort of like functional understanding of the word of God, what is clear in the scripture is that David did not get away with 
uh, his actions, that his sin came at a cost, that the price was higher than initial, initial perceptions. It reminds me of buying a new car. You ever gone and done that? The sticker price doesn't seem so bad. Then you sit down with the salesman and the finance person and the fees begin to add up. You know, there's the extended warranty and the special package to protect your paint and all the different things. And then the cherry on top is the taxes. And then, you know, maybe you finance it for a long period of time and you get three months into that 84 months of payments and you go, wow, this, this is costing more than I had hoped. It's going to have repercussions for a long time. Well, that's sin. There's nothing cheap about sin. And there's no fault in God's, God's word that grace and forgiveness is available for all who would come to uh, repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. The worst of sinners can find forgiveness and grace. Amen? And so that's what we love about this story of David and Bathsheba is the way that God works to lead them to his throne of mercy. So let's check it out and see what happens here in this story. It says this in verse 1. In the spring of the year that in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So at this point in his reign, we think this that David's getting a little bit older. Estimates are this that he's about 50. Okay? So he's at that point when he goes to the grocery store and he picks up something, he's he can't quite read it. He's got his Bible out. He's looking for his reading glasses. He's not springing out of bed like he used to. Prosperity and comfort um, can be a spiritually dangerous thing. It seems with David at this point in time, uh, his desire and zeal for the battlefield had been dulled. It was just easier to stay home and resist war rather than be personally engaged in, in battle. And so it seems as you read this, that there's a little bit of cruise control going on. He settled into a little bit of comfort, the comfort zone and into idleness. And the old saying is true that Satan finds some mischief for idle hands to do. So we read this, we're going to read it in a second, that he, he takes an afternoon nap and then after his nap, he makes his way up onto the roof of the palace. And I'm not sure what he was up there doing. Scripture doesn't tell us. I don't know if he's just uh, warming up in the sun after his nap. Or like Nebuchadnezzar, he was looking over the city of Jerusalem and the pride of his heart and saying, wow, look what I rule over. Scripture doesn't tell us. Doesn't tell us that it was wrong that he was having rest or that it's wrong to take Sabbath. But that's not what was happening with David. This wasn't about Sabbath or about rest. He should have been at war. And instead, he's neglecting his responsibility. He's idle. I think it's in the love of comfort. And palace life had become for him, you know, so much better than those years of wilderness wandering and living in the cave. So let's check out what happens. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness, then she returned 
to her house. So a little surprise on the roof. David's up there doing whatever he's doing. And there's a beautiful woman taking a bath within his eyesight. Now, I don't think, you know, when I read this, I don't think David goes up there looking to find that. And I bet, I bet that his initial reaction was a little bit of shock, a little bit of like, whoa, what did I just come across here? And he probably turned away in embarrassment that he had stumbled onto this woman in this situation. But as he played it over in his heart, he took the second look. The second look's a dangerous one, right? It's a dangerous one. When your eyes have seen something beautiful and the eye gate is opened and then you take a second look, there is big potential for sin to be conceived. And sin gives birth to death. The second look led to an inquiry to discover who this beautiful woman was. And by this point in time, David had played it over enough in his heart and his mind that the fact that she was married was of little consideration to him. She came to him. And he slept with her, and as the book of Proverbs says, he, he heaped burning coals onto his own lap. Now, verse 5, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So, good Bible story here, a few minutes of fun, and now the king's got a real problem on his hands with a married woman, the wife of another man, the wife of Uriah. Uriah, when we read about him in Scripture, he's counted amongst David's mighty men. This isn't, this isn't just some stranger, some unknown person, the husband of this woman. Uh, David has sinned against someone who is closer to him than the average citizen. And I imagine this, that there were those around him who knew what had happened. It's kind of hard to keep things quiet in a palace with all the servants around, and I actually think a palace is probably about the worst place to keep secrets, filled with servants. I, I'm going to admit it, I've watched out in Abbey, okay? Uh, so I know what the servants' quarters are like. It's a soap opera unto itself, isn't it? And so many of them uh, are living vicariously through their lords and ladies. And so to keep the palace a place of secrecy and quiet was not that. It was not going to be that. I think about in our culture, to our shame, you know, before God, we know how to deal with an unwanted, unexpected pregnancy. But David had to do some work to cover up what was going on. So let's read on verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went, to the, went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So here's, here's the plan on the king's part. Uh, let's get Uriah home from the battlefield. Let's make him comfortable. Uh, I'll send along behind him. Uh, a gift when he goes home to his wife. Uh, of course, a soldier coming home from the battlefield is going to be looking forward to the comfort of his own bed and the wife, the arms of his wife. And David underestimated this, the integrity and the honor of this man. Now, verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. 
When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Verse 11, Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So it was just practice. We read this and other places in the scripture that amongst that culture, when it was battle time, when they were Men of David were going off to war, and David sent them to battle. They were on the king's mission. The practice was this. They were kept from women. And Uriah said this, the ark of the Lord dwells in a tent. You know what? I'll survive one night without my wife. Joab and the army are sleeping out in the open field. I'm not going to die here because I don't get an unexpected night with my wife. So Uriah sleeps outside. Uh, the door of the king's palace, with the servants of the king. I love this about this guy. To maintain his integrity and honor, Uriah did this. He stayed close to the king's palace. He used close vicinity to the king's presence to guard himself to do what he believed was right. You know, it just tells me to stay close to the king. To guard your honor and your integrity, stay close to King Jesus. Now, for David, this was a problem. This was supposed to be a cover-up. Verse 12, Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with, his, with the servants of, the Lord, of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So here's phase two of the plan. Get him drunk. Uh, David made sure Uriah's wine glass was full all night long. He knew that any man's inhibitions are, are uh, dulled under the influence of alcohol. Uriah won't have the same ability to control his behavior. He'll stumble home to his wife and problem solve. But it didn't work. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Man, I don't know about you, but whenever I read this, I get like a pit forming in my stomach. Do you get that? You're like, wow, this is like, this is the grossness of sin right here, isn't it? the shocking depths to which a person can go. This isn't somebody that's like uninformed about the Lord or uninformed about sin and uninformed about sin's consequence. This is David, the one we love in Scripture. This is the man whom God had set his heart upon, the man who's called the man after God's own heart, the shepherd psalmist. You know, when it comes to sin, I think this, I read this about David, and it's like so easy to have these thoughts in our hearts and minds to, to say, well, I would never. It's easy to, to justify our sin with levels of comparison. We justify our sin and weigh ourselves against other people whom we deem far worse. We say, well, I, I wouldn't sink to that level. 
I haven't sunk to that level. We could think this. I'm above what David did. I'm above adultery. I'm above murder. But that's not what Jesus said, did he? He said these things. Then he said, these things are in the hearts of human beings. We're we're above nothing and capable of everything, anything. To me, this is a great warning in this text, this scripture, because this is David. And I'm no David, you're no David. This is the man we love, and yet this is where he went. It makes me think this, you know, the world preaches this, follow your heart. But the Bible says this, the heart is wicked and deceitful. Jesus said, in the heart is anger, which is the spirit of murder. Jesus said, in the heart is lust, the spirit of adultery. I think about David, it's not like he didn't have everything that he needed at home already. I mean, how many women does this guy need, (laughs) as we've seen already? You know, I would say this, guys, if God's provided you with a wife, then you make her the standard of beauty. You make her your standard of beauty and the desire of your affections. All others are weighed in the balances against her, and they should be found wanting. We're to follow the word of God, not our hearts. And we ask the Lord to align our hearts with his mind and with his word, align our minds with his word. We have to hide the word of God in our hearts. The word of God becomes the center of our affections so that our passions be directed towards the Lord Jesus. And so this is shocking, isn't it? It's like David puts the letter, the instruction, on how to murder this man into the man's hands. It's disturbing. Right into Uriah's hands. It says, deliver this letter to Joab. Uriah doesn't know that he's carrying instructions on how he's to be killed. I just think this it would have been more honorable if David had stuck the knife in his back right there. Doesn't get any lower than this for a man after God's own heart. Now, verse 16. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants among David, sorry, servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. I mean, I imagine, you know, imagine your heart being so deceived that you think murder is the solution to your problem. I know what I'll do. I'll take a life. It's demonic. It's satanic. Satan is a, a liar and a thief. The Word of God says that he is a murderer. To put yourself in the place of God with anger in your heart to say, I will decide the value of life and I'll take it. That's what David did. Verse 18. Then Joab sent, told David all the news about the fighting and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. I'm like, I read this, I'm like, Joab's no fool. 
Joab's got blood on his own hands, and it's not going to be, wasn't the first time or the last time. Joab knows what's going on here. Now, verse 22. So the messenger came, sorry, the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Isn't it sick? It's disturbed. David's got the heart of a, the cold heart of a killer here. And it's not just Uriah. You read this and it's like, it's not just Uriah who loses his life. There are other unnamed soldiers that David sacrificed in an attempt to, I'm going to say this, to atone for his sin. It's an attempt to cover it up, an attempt to atone. Uh, that's what I would call it, a futile attempt to atone for sin, a coverment, a cover-up. You know, the Bible teaches us this, that atonement for sin is why Jesus came. It's why Jesus went to the cross, to cover our sin with His blood. But here's the thing, the cross is not a cover-up. David attempted a cover-up, Jesus did not. The atonement is not a covering in the sense of a cover-up. Atonement is Jesus standing in our place as a substitution. Substitute, not a cover-up. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and Jesus took your place and covered your sin. He bore the wrath of God and the punishment of death in exchange for you. He redeemed. Jesus rescued Jesus bartered your life with his own and there was no cover-up. The punishment for your sin deserved, that, deserved death and he completely bore it and paid it in its entirety, 100%, no exceptions. And so before him, we're to do this. We're to uncover sin because he's covered it. We're to confess it. We're to bring it into the light. We don't hide it. We lift the lid off saying, I know this, Jesus paid the punishment for my sin. It's paid. Jesus paid it all. And so we uncover sin. That's what the scripture tells us to do, to, con to confess it. And sometimes, you know, in, in fear and in shame of acknowledging on the inside, you know, uh, what's gone on, what we've participated in, sometimes we're, we're paralyzed. But I want to tell you this, when I think about this story, when I was, you know, meditating and thinking on it, I was, I was thinking this, one thing is for certain, at least I can say this about myself, and I think I can say it about you too. David was a better man or a better person than anyone here. And this is what David was capable of. This is the account of his sin. And nothing you may have done could be worse than David. This is the insight into the heart of human beings. We're to uncover our sin. We're to bring it into the light so that the Lord can deal with it. 
Now let's read on what happens here. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What's interesting about this account is it doesn't tell us anything about Bathsheba. The only thing that we're told is she sent him a message to say, I'm pregnant. Her responsibility in terms of what happened is not mentioned. Her culpability, not recorded. We can like speculate. I don't think she's without guilt. She's not. But for the purposes of God and what the Holy Spirit wants us to connect here for our own hearts, all of the fault is laid solely on David. For the purpose of this accounting, culpability is not put on Bathsheba, and it's not the point. Here's the point. The point is this. If David can do this, then we can too. If David can do this, then none of us are above. So what does David do? He marries Bathsheba, and all appearances are that he got away with it. At least on the outside, those are the appearances. But when we turn to Psalm 51, David confesses that at this time, he was dying on the inside. He said it felt to him like his bones were rotting. Because of his sin and the guilt and the shame, it was killing him. And I think that the key to understanding this text is the very last sentence. You should underline it in this chapter. It says this, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. How did it go so far? How did it go so far? Let me give you four steps that lead to death. Number one is this. It's not on the screen, so I'm just going to share it with you. Number one, neglecting our duty. Neglecting our duty. The Lord Jesus said this, that those who follow him have to pick up their cross and deny themselves. It's a place, it's to take the place of a servant. And one of the things that happens in our culture is this, is that we can slide like David into days of prosperity and comfort, put it into idol. The drift starts. Look at the way to get out of that is to begin to serve. I would just say to you and encourage you to protect yourself from idle hands. Look for a place to serve. Step into it. The second thing David did is this. He indulged his eyes. He indulged his eyes. You know, the psalmist says this in Psalm 121, that I lift my eyes to the mountains to see where my help comes from. You know, we live, obviously, in a culture that indulges the eyes. We're like stimulated non-stop with our phones and with all the devices we have. And what I want to encourage you to do is this. Lift your eyes. Your eyes need to be set in a direction where you are looking to the hills saying, I know where my help comes from. When the eye gate gets opened and that first glance happens, lift your eyes and say, Lord, you're my help. I don't know how I'm getting out of this. You got to help me. And he will. David neglected his duty, indulged his eyes, and I would say this, he betrayed his spouse. 
It actually makes me think of the church because we're the bride of Christ. We've been uh, given to the Lord Jesus as a bride. He is the groom, the bridegroom of his church. And when we begin to betray the Lord Jesus, we go on these steps towards death. Or it can literally be like David, a betraying of a spouse. Or uh, like Bathsheba, the betraying of our spouse. Neglecting our duty, indulging our eyes, betraying our spouse. And the fourth thing was this, he hid his sin. I just want to encourage you in, in this this morning. Uncover it. Bring it to the light. Actually, just for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into chapter 12 today because I wanted to spend more time there. And one of the things I love about chapter 12, we're going to dive into this next week, is this, is that David had a trusted friend who could come and be accountable, to whom he could be accountable. Someone who could speak into his life, the prophet Nathan. They had enough relationship that Nathan could say, David, you can trust me. I love you. We have a relationship. This has happened. You need to uncover it. You know, Jesus said this, the problem with us is that we see the speck in our brother's eye and we ignore the log in our own. He says that's what a hypocrite does. Jesus said, deal first with the the log in your own eye so that you can help your neighbor with with the speck that's in his own. And I love this story because to me, the story of David here as we read this, it tells us this, look at. None of us is above such things, but it also tells us this, that if we'll recognize the plank in our own eye, it'll give us a heart of humility and grace towards others. We can't say, David, I'm so disappointed in you. I never thought you, David, of all people would do such a thing. I'm so glad that I'm not as bad as you, David. No, you and I are without Jesus. You and I are capable of anything with regards to sin. Anything. And so this morning, you know, uh, as I consider this, I just think this, we have the privilege we get to come to the table of the Lord today, which is an opportunity to deal with cover-ups. To say, Lord, I got to deal with some secret stuff in my heart. I've got to confess some sin that hasn't been dealt with. Lord, there's some logs some planks, some murderous actions, some lustful thoughts. I need you to deal with it, Jesus. You know, Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. I don't think Jesus is literally saying, gouge your eyes out here or, you know, (laughs) cut your right hand off. He's saying this, you need to take serious actions with regards to your sin. Don't mess around. Deal with it. He said this about anger in the heart. He said, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with the accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge 
and the judge to the guard, and you be put in, the, in prison. Jesus says you've got to deal with these things. You've got to bring them into the light. Bring your heart before the Lord. Bring your actions of sin before Him. And the message is this. The message of the gospel is this. Here, here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel is not a message of condemnation. It's an invitation. It's a message, come. Come to me. You're weary. You're broken. You need forgiveness. You need freedom. I invite you, come. Come and be washed. Come and be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Come and have your sins forgiven. Come to the throne of grace and mercy and experience it. This morning, just as we come to the Lord's table, that's just the encouragement that I want to give you. Maybe there's just stuff in your heart, in your life. Maybe it needs to be confessed. Maybe it needs to be shared with someone. Maybe it needs to be shared with a spouse or a close friend. Maybe it needs to be just dealt with between you and the Lord. David covered it up. That didn't please the Lord. I want to please the Lord, don't you? Don't you want to please the Lord? Part of pleasing the Lord is this, as we uncover our stuff, we bring it to Him. And the table of the Lord is the perfect time to do that. And so this morning, we're, we're going to uh, celebrate the Lord's table together. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And as we uh, get ready to do that, I just want to remind you this, that the Word of God says this, that, that, that there is an open invitation to the table to come and eat of the Lord, to come and share of who Christ is and His work of redemption. And so just in our church, we practice an open table. You're welcome to come and participate with us. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you come. But then the second thing I always love to say is this, is that if you don't know Jesus, Jesus isn't your personal Lord and Savior, then I just ask this morning that you'd respectfully refrain. We won't look down on you. We won't look at the speck in your own eye when we have a plank in ours. But just say this, respectfully refrain and know that this is a holy thing that we participate in. It's an identification with Jesus. It's an identification with the cross. It's an identification with His shed blood and broken body. And so, you know, if you don't know Jesus, just the honorable thing to do like Uriah is to say, no, I'm not going to the table. But the third option is this. The gospel's an invitation. Jesus says, come, eat of me. Come and drink of me. I will satisfy your hunger and I will quench your thirst. In uh, participation with the table of the Lord, we are, we are acknowledging our, our part in the cross of the Lord Jesus. We are acknowledging our part in His act of atonement for us, His act of sacrifice to redeem us from sin's power and death's consequence. And so this morning, if, if you want to take that third step and you just say, I, I, I want forgiveness of my sins. I want to uncover my heart and experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then I would encourage you to do this. Come to the table of the Lord with us this morning. Participate. Eat and drink. Acknowledge the blood and body of the Lord Jesus. Repent of your sins. And the Word of God says, you'll be saved.